This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. Higher and higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I say God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. Are you sitting comfortably? Well, put your seatbelts on because you're in for a howling ride. I am the narrator. Voice the guides the blind, following up with your ears, with your mind, and allow me to take you back on fourth through time to explain the significance of things you may think insignificant now, but won't further down the line. My guest this morning is Daniel J. Siegel. Dan Siegel is a clinical professor of psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine. He's the founding director of the UCLA Mindful Awareness Research Center and the executive director of the Mindsight Institute. He's also an award-winning educator and a distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association. He's the author and co-author of many books, including The Neurobiology of We, Parenting from the Inside Out, the Whole Brain Child, Mindsight, and his latest book is Aware, The Science and Practice of Presence. Hi, Dan. Welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you. Good to be here. I'm so glad to have you on. I've been wanting to have you on my show for years, and I'm really excited to talk about this wonderful new book of yours, Aware, the Science and Practice of Presence. Thank you, thank you. And one of the things that I especially love about this is that you integrate all my favorite subjects. And it's a work of wonderful integration of all these fabulous, juicy, and totally relevant topics to our human lives and and the human condition. Well, I'm so grateful that you're finding it that way because obviously it takes a lot of work to put this together and I'm so glad it's accessible and, and uh, available in these integrated ways. Thank you. I find it to be brilliant the way you put things together and you, you create 
in a sense, you create whole new languages, whole new models of ways to understand things in more scientific terms, which is something that I greatly appreciate because I like having a more scientifically consistent way of, of understanding these things. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm just like you. So, uh, you know, to combine the actual experience with the science was really my goal and to, to allow them to be kind of woven together and to mutually support each other. That's, that's what I was really hoping for. So I'd like to begin with a line from the book that you return to periodically. The plane of possibility can be thought of as a portal to integration. And that's a line that I can relate to a lot in my life and the way I've been thinking about things and sensing things. And I would love for you to unpack that line and to explain how the plane of possibility can connect us to integration and then use it as a kind of springboard to get into the nature of mind, awareness, and presence, and of course, how we can learn to use our mind to direct our attention and awareness to create greater integration in our lives, in our brains, and in the world around us as well. Yes, yes, wow. Well, you know, you're getting right to the heart of the matter. Um, For those who haven't read the book yet, let me back up just a half a step and just say that when you do the wheel of awareness practice you're distinguishing the hub of awareness of being aware from the rim of what you're aware of like my saying hello there's the hello on the rim but the knowing that i've said hello is actually in the hub now when you see it this way you start doing a practice if you're up for it called the wheel of awareness where you move a spoke of attention around the rim and then you bend the spoke right into the hub itself and when you do this practice like I do this every day it's my regular practice you start to have this experience that in the hub itself there's this expansiveness this what you know I've done this with 10,000 people and had them to share that when they got into the hub they felt this openness, this clarity, this sense of connection that they didn't have before, a sense of love. For some people, they felt God. For some people, it was just peacefulness and joy. And this happened over and over and over again. So I, I kept on asking myself, both as an educator doing the workshops, but also as a scientist, just wondering, like, what in the world is going on with this metaphor of a wheel that could bring people to these states of openness and clarity just in this very brief practice. So I went to the science of the brain and there's some very interesting things about consciousness in the brain but ultimately what they say is the brain creates states of integration that seem to be activated when we're aware and that's helpful to a certain degree and interesting but it doesn't actually illuminate why in the Wheel of Awareness practice in the 10,000-person study did people have this experience of wide, open expansiveness? So I went beyond just the science of the brain to an earlier proposal that the mind was an emergent property of energy. 
that happens both within us, including our brain and our rest of our body too, so it's fully embodied, but also between us and our relationships, and then went to the science of energy. And I got to spend a lot of time with physicists who are the experts in energy, and they said, when I said, what is energy, what is energy? They said, ultimately, energy can be seen as the movement from possibility to actuality. And I quickly want to forewarn all of you listening that um, there's about a, a couple of minutes of audio distortion coming up, but stay with it and, and it, it magically resolves itself. And hopefully you'll be able to hear through it. And that really threw me because I didn't know what they were talking about. And usually when people hear that, they go, what? What are you talking about? But when you really map out what these physicists mean, what I think is going on is the wheel of awareness lets us experience directly that the rim points are when energy is manifested in the actuality or sometimes even increased probabilities called plateaus and the actualities are peaks. But these are all higher states of probability, you know, 100% for an actuality, for example. But when you drop all the way down, like to the possible million words I could say before I say it, it's one out of a million, so we call it near zero. I think, this is just a suggestion, that awareness comes from this plane of possibility. And if that's true, then when you access the hub of the wheel practice, that's a metaphor, the mechanism is you're dropping into the plane of possibility. And there are a number of implications of that. But one is that you are aware, for whatever reason we don't know. The second is that you can pause between your peaks that arise, so pause between an impulse and an action. It's also that when you drop into awareness, you're tapping into the mathematical space of the mind is where other choices rest. So you can actually choose other things. And then the other things that are kind of amazing is that, this gets to your question, integration is the linking of differentiated parts. It's the natural drive of the mind as what's called a self-organizing process. Basically, it's the natural drive of the mind. So when you drop out of these peaks and plateaus and into the plane, it's the portal through which integration is allowed to emerge. So you don't have to make it happen. What you do is you get rid of the obstacles to you dropping into awareness. Drop into open awareness, and then integration can be allowed to occur. That's basically, I think, the fastest summary you'll ever get. In the book, I do it much more slowly. So if your listeners hear this and they go, oh my God, this is too complicated. You know, I do it really slowly. My daughter, Maddie, she does all the drawings for the book, so you see it step by step laid out in the second part of the book. Um, so this is just a very condensed summary just so people can begin um, to get a feeling for what the plane of possibility is and you know how appropriate your question is of why is the plane the portal through which integration arises. And that's the best I can do for a brief online live summary of what's going on, I think. I remember while I was reading, that was one of the most grueling parts of the book to adapt to a whole new language and model of understanding, translating that experience. How did it go for you as you went through it? Because it is new, and taking on anything new is tough, and I think I even acknowledge that in the book. But what, what was it like for you to, to, to get through it? Um, it was very satisfying. 
I always read very slowly anyway, just because I, I want to understand things. And everything that you were talking about really resonates with my own personal experience and my own sense that everything seems to emerge out of that plane of possibility. And that leads me to this question that did occur, whether you had any distinction between the term presence and the plane of possibility. Yeah, you know, I think the plane of possibility is where presence comes from. So presence is, I think, a very accessible term. It's a term used in the research, you know, um, you can study mental presence, basically receptive awareness. So I think the plane is the scientific mechanism that helps us understand presence. Right. It's a kind of mathematical explanation for it. Yeah, because here's the thing that's so, I think, exciting about where we're at. Yes, we're born into a body, and the body is composed of matter, you know, all these molecules. That's fine. And Sir Isaac Newton figured out how Newtonian properties work 350 years ago, and that's great. But your mind is more than matter. It's part of the same reality, but it's not condensed energy. You know, remember, E equals MC squared. This is what Einstein taught us. So small bits of energy are called microstates, and those are electrons and photons and things like that. So the world of microstates is studied with a whole different set of laws called quantum properties. And these quantum laws actually don't overlap with Newtonian classical physics laws of big objects like planets or your body or a bicycle or something. In the Scientific American July 2018, the cover story was about when does the Newtonian classical world meet the quantum physics realm? And I think what happens with the mind is the mind is an emergent property of energy. And so aspects of it have Newtonian properties of you know, certainties, you know, like a thought can come and go, and a certainty is you can't get back that thought. That's called the arrow of time. So you have a feeling of time passing called an arrow, directionality of change, in certain aspects of the mind. But with the wheel practice, what becomes clear is that in the hub, in this plane of possibility, you're probably more in the quantum realm of energy. And I'm not making that up. That's an accepted part of science, the quantum realm is. What I'm suggesting is that consciousness itself, being aware, is actually having elements of the quantum state. What are those? One of them is that people describe that time disappears and that there is no arrow of time. That's just one component. The other is that things are filled with uncertainty, right, which is what the quantum world is all about, not absolute certainties, but just emerging probabilities. So the bottom line is we have a mind that is more than just physical objects. So while people may hear you say, oh, the plane of possibility is a mathematical space, well, the way quantum physicists talk about energy is with mathematical spaces. I mean, it may be unusual for us to start thinking this way, but it's actually scientific. It's grounded in science. It may feel abstract at first, but when you dip into pure awareness, this actually helps us understand it in a scientific way. Mm -hmm. And another aspect of dropping into presence is the sense of I-ness seems to 
disappear. Yes, exactly. And I, in a way, as a constructed, almost, and sometimes, doesn't have to be this way, but it can be more like a Newtonian fixed structure. We call it a plateau in this diagram. And dropping out of the imprisonment that that can sometimes be, not always, but sometimes, is really a source of freedom. Mm-hmm. And at first it can be scary because, you know, you want to know exactly who you are and, and be able to say, this is for certain about me. But when you drop into the plane, you get past those fears of being without certainty and you feel the freedom because ultimately what the synonym for uncertainty is, is possibility. And when people learn to do the wheel of awareness practice, they get access to the hub, which is the plane of possibility. Then they start to learn, wow, I have just become free. And as one workshop participant, I said, how's it going? You know, she pointed to her, her smile and she said, this is all I'm going to say. And there's this huge, huge smile on her face of relaxation, of clarity, of freedom. And her friends who are also at the workshop with her said they have never seen her so relaxed and so filled with joy. Mm-hmm. And that's the choice. That's that's the option that the mind has. It can go in different directions. It can go in the direction of free and open, infinite possibility, or it can go into that realm of past probability of our old ways and habits of, of thinking of things. Exactly. And that's a beautiful way of describing presence, which is where you've dropped out of a fixed way of being and say, look, I want to just be present for what happens. I don't know exactly how I'm going to respond. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't have to control it. I can let myself drop into presence and let life happen like that. And when people do that, all sorts of kind of awesome things, literally filled with awe things, happen. They've happened, I mean, since I did this with all these, like literally 10,000 people in the study, but now a lot more, the feedback has been just so fascinating and consistent that when you access this hub of the wheel through the practice, it looks like you really are tapping into this plane of possibility where new ways of being are waiting for you to just tap into them and letting them emerge rather than being lost in a particular, we call it a plateau, which just only has certain peaks that come out. And once you see, as you, you saw when you made it through that part of the book, once you try on the new vocabulary, having conversations with people about the plane and about not getting caught up in plateaus and peaks of the past, it becomes a deep, deep conversation that itself is quite liberating to be able to share with people. I totally agree. And another wonderful aspect of this plane of possibility is that's the easiest place where we can all connect Exactly. And you talk a lot about this me and we, and then you have this term of your own combining the two, we, because it's not just about me or just about we, as you say, but the interrelationship of it. Exactly. And that, that we, it's so interesting what a little teeny word, a three-letter word can do. You know, that we has been for myself, I can say, but also for so many people I've talked to, a way of literally integrating identity and saying, how can I be in this world and have a sense of belonging where I don't give up my individuality? You know, because if I go me to we, I'm giving up me to go to we, but how do you actually have both? And we just lets you embrace the two of them. 
That has been an issue that I've been playing with much of my life. And, and I love the way you integrate all of this in really all of your work, but especially in this new book. And I wish we had more time. Well, let's find another opportunity to converse one coast to the other someplace. And yeah, this is great. And, you know, the thing that's so exciting is if you get, let's say, like people reading it and having this kind of conversation, it'll be so thrilling to see where a conversation about the plane of possibility and from the plane of possibility will take you. Exactly. That's the next chapter in our our journey, all the we together. Yes, absolutely. And I've been having conversations about this, but I I am excited to do exactly that, get into these deeper conversations. I'm so grateful for your time, and I'm so glad that I'm finally getting to talk with you. And I have such great appreciation for this very difficult, grueling work that you're doing of, of integrating it all. Well, thank thank you. you. Thank you. I hope through the gruel we get to the goodness and the peace and clarity of it all. (laughs) Thank you. That's the whole point of the gruel is to get (laughs) to that place. You know, and it's a great way to say it because, you know, when you go through a period of hard work and transformation, you really come through the other end with a reorganization that is really quite fantastic. Exactly. Exactly. Well, again, thank you so much. A pleasure. Thank you. Be well. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. And a couple of weeks later, I got to record another interview with Dan Siegel. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. Stay with us. Up next, interview part two with Dan Siegel. I've always been fascinated by the mind, what it is, what its nature is, and what is possible when harnessed with intention and when we unravel the limitations we oppose on it. And I'm very, very excited to have you talk about mind as an emergent property of energy and what physicists have told you about what energy is and how we can learn to harness it in a skillful an integrative way. Yeah. But I was thinking of approaching this initially from the perspective of the challenge that we face as human beings, both individually and collectively as a species. You know, the experience and the effects of the illusion of separation that we all encounter as we come into this world, and that is continually being reaffirmed by our culture and nearly everyone in it. Yep, exactly. And now, as a species, we appear to be facing an existential crisis caused by the way we have learned to think and to treat ourselves and each other and everything as separate things. Yes, I think that's very powerfully stated, yes. So how did you end up getting into psychiatry, and then how did you get to interpersonal neurobiology? Sure, um... Well, it's a it's a a long story that I wrote up in a book called Mind because that journey was a, a kind of a a winding road that I wanted to try to make sense of, and the journey itself to make sense of the journey really gave some 
perspective to people who read the book Mind in a way that was really helpful to deepen a, a discussion. Because for me, what, what basically happened in a very outlined form is after training as a, a biochemistry major in college and moving on to medical school, the lack of a focus on the subjective experience of patients or of students by my professors, I was at a research institution, really was disturbing to me. And so I dropped out of school. And in that time of being away, really thought deeply about what had gone wrong, at least with my experience of being there. And this lack of empathy and this lack of compassion were deeply, deeply disturbing for me, for sure, you know, because I was living in my own subjective reality of what it had been like to be a medical student there. But as I was reflecting on it, it really felt like it wasn't just my personal difficulties that led me to drop out of school. It was more of kind of a universal thing that when I ultimately decided to go back to school, I made up this word mindsight for sensing the inner subjective experience that we can put with the word mind. So seeing as the sight and mind, mind sight. And when I went back, it became pretty clear that you know, when patients had their mind, their feelings, the meaning of things recognized by their physicians, they seemed to do better. And students certainly with a teacher seemed to do better. And in all of these ways, mindsight seemed to be important for health. So I finished up medical school, went on to start in pediatrics, switched to psychiatry. And that notion that we have both a capacity for mindsight, which allows insight and empathy and the way of respecting each other's differences, um, was quite different from something you might call physical sight, the ability to see the physical world. And so that kind of became a, an organizing uh, perspective for me. And then, you know, when I became a researcher after my clinical training in attachment, pa parent-child relationships, it seemed like mindsight was central even to what you call in the research world secure attachment, which had all these positive outcomes. And so now we're talking about 1987, you know, 88. And as I became a, a researcher in this field, an attachment researcher, and moved into you know, being a, a, an academic, you know, I felt there needed to be a way to bring mindsight into the discussion with my peers who were both scientists and clinicians. And so that really raised a kind of simple question, but shockingly not asked question, like what is the definition of the mind if we have a field called mental health or a field called education that educates the mind or parenting that helps develop the mind? What is this thing called mind? And that's where the point you're raising, Tonio, is, you know, that... Uh, we didn't have uh, a definition of mind. And so in bringing 40 scientists together, you know, some of them were anthropologists and sociologists and linguists. Some of them were research psychologists and neuroscientists. And there wasn't a consensus about what the mind was. A neuroscientist might say the mind is a term we use for brain activity. It might be related to feelings and thoughts and things like that and behaviors, but it's brain activity in a Anthropologists would say, no way, you know, the mind is in culture. So in the intervening time before the next meeting, you know, I 
really cared about these people and cared about the topic and there was incredible tension and it just seemed to me that there needed to be some way to bridge the relational aspect of things and the embodied neural aspect of things so you're just on a long 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 walk uh it just felt to me walking on the beach that you know the beach is both the water and the sand and you you don't define the coast as one or the other and i thought what what would be the case if we were bringing something together that could combine the relational and the embodied and it just seemed to me that energy flow was what happened in a relationship that i was studying it as an attachment researcher but energy also flowed inside the brain so when i thought about my training in neuroscience you know the way my teacher in medical school david hubel um taught us about the brain and what he won the nobel prize for was to show how energy flow through the brain changed the structure of the brain so when i came back to the group that was a natural thing to at least propose to them that could we see the mind as emerging from a system of energy flow some of that energy flow is symbolic so we call it information and the qualities of that system uh, met the mathematical criteria for a complex system which means it's capable of being chaotic it's um, open and it's non-linear those three characteristics especially the non-linear one and so you know mathematics had already demonstrated that complex systems have what are called emergent phenomena and one of those is the property called self organization and so i said well maybe you know mind in all its different facets like subjective experience could be an emergent property of energy and information flow and one of those aspects might be self organization uh and so that would allow energy and information flow to be the fundamental essence of mind and we would say as a definition that mind is emerging from that flow and that one aspect of it would be this embodied and relational self-organizing emergent process that is regulating energy and information flow uh both inside of the body and in our relational connections with other people and even with nature with the planet and when i went back to the group this definition amazingly was accepted by 40 of 40 scientists which blew my mind now that i could have a definition of the mind i could say that and it turned out to you know over the last whatever it's been over a quarter of a century to have you know be able to predict what future research studies would show and so so far we wouldn't you know say it's proven but so far every bit of science to look at what the implications are of saying the mind is an emergent property of energy have held true and in a recent meeting with Antonio Damasio who sees a broader view of the mind he does not use the concept of energy flow the way we're using it here but when i offered this up to him in front of all the participants at our meeting our annual interpersonal neurobiology meeting he was really thoughtful and said you know that is a totally solid scientific thing to do and so even though no one seems to do it it's uh, been a very useful even if it's extremely uncommon thing to do um and it's turned out to be very helpful in in lots and lots of ways even if it's a new way of thinking so of course now we need to get into what energy is and how physicists who are the experts on energy how they define what energy is 
Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, the journey as you're describing, Antonio, is so interesting because, you know, I'm trained originally in biology and it's natural to turn to enzymes and physiological processes. And I love that. I, I, I studied it because I was madly in love with biology and uh, more broadly, just the idea of studying the nature of reality, which we call, you know, science. But I was really maybe filled with a feeling of, uh, I don't know what you call it, but deep respect or humility or, you know, trying to really just be like embracing the limitations of what a given branch of science, whichever that branch would be, it'd be more like, you know, the uh, old Indian fable of the blind man, the elephant, just saying there is an elephant. But in academics, we're usually encouraged to really focus in on the toe or the tail or the ear or the trunk or something. And that's, you know, important work to do to really describe that toe in great, great detail. But then to open up, to broaden a perspective, to say there's something broader. So as I was doing my clinical work with patients and really listening closely to what their experience was and then took two scientific ideas that integration is what is the natural statement from uh, proposing the mind as a self-organizing process. You say, how do you optimize that? And you do that through linking differentiated parts. And there's a useful term integration that math does not use that term, but, but they do use the concept of differentiation and linkage. So integration, we're just going to define as a balance of those two processes, things being different, but then linked. So I took that finding from the early nineties in this journey with the other finding, which was consciousness needed for change. And I started doing this way to integrate consciousness, which we can talk about. But the, the bottom line of all that was I started doing, you know, this kind of survey type study of, you know, lots and lots of people, 10,000 people doing this workshop on this process to integrate consciousness. And the results were really common across nations because I would go all around the world doing this. So as I reviewed the brain science of consciousness, it was interesting and, you know, nice to see what the scientists had found. But none of that science really illuminated why people doing the Wheel of Awareness practice had these universal things they kept on experiencing. So when I was wondering more deeply what, what consciousness might be, then if consciousness was one aspect of the mind and the earlier proposal, if it were true, and there was lots of research to support it so that it was seemed to be on the right path anyway, even if no one else was saying those things, the idea that mind was an emergent property of energy seemed to be useful and, and perhaps even be correct. Then you go, well, okay, then what is energy? Not just what is the brain or what's the body, but you know, the skull or skin don't limit energy flow. It happens between us and within us. So what is this energy thing? So I, I had the good fortune to be invited to spend a week with 150 physicists. And as you know, physicists are the experts in energy. So, you know, repeatedly, I would just keep on asking them, what's energy, what's energy? And their statement, of course, is different forms, you know, electrical energy, chemical energy, things like that. Like the brain is electrochemical energy flow. In our conversation with each other right now, it's the energy of the movement of air molecules we call sound, and hearing is based on that form of energy. But ultimately, why do these things all share the word energy? And it turns out that a physicist considers energy in a very profound way that we usually don't hear about. It's the movement 
from possibility to actuality. And that view from the, you know, the blind men and the elephant perspective of the physicists, you know, what's energy, was really useful for the blind perspective of, you know, psychology, because even though you, you don't do this in psychology or psychiatry, for me, mind, the purview of psychology and psychiatry, mind is possibly, you know, this outcome of energy flow. So then energy flow is not just sound and light and all these things. People often say, oh, you're talking metaphysical. No, I'm talking about physical. I'm talking about the actual thing that a physicist studies, energy. So when they said it was the movement from possibility to actuality, you know, I took out this page of of my journal. I wrote it out to try to visualize it for some students on a train. And you get this really interesting diagram that moves from this lower area where all possibilities rest that a quantum physicist would call the sea of potential or the quantum vacuum. And it's a formless source of all form is how a physicist talks. And from that formless source of all form, you have potential energy. So energy isn't in the plane of possibility, the sea of potential on the diagram. It's three-dimensional, so we call it a plane but it arises from that and it arises through various stages of probability into actualization. So if I'm going to think of a word, maybe there's a million words we share. That's the lowest place. Let's call that the plane of possibility. Then let's say I'm going to think of one of the five oceans. Now we're up at a plateau where there's only five things within that circle way up on the graph. So one out of five instead of one out of a million. But now finally I say Pacific ocean And of the million options, it's actualized into one particular one. So the certainty at that point is 100%. So on this up and down aspect of this diagram, you what's called the y-axis, you have a probability distribution curve that goes from the top of 100%, I've said Pacific Ocean, to a little bit lower, one out of five, you know, and that would be the plateau of increased probability. But then we drop all the way down to all possibilities, uh, not just a selection as a subset, but actually all of them, that's called the plane of possibility in this diagram. That would correlate with the quantum vacuum or the sea of potential. Those are synonyms. And so a physicist would see the movement of me coming to say Pacific Ocean as what energy flow really means. And then you can graph that whole diagram, peak, plateau, and plane, onto the 10,000-person study of the Wheel of Awareness with some fascinating implications that we can talk about and it's been just an amazing journey to share this with people doing the wheel or just in general being interested in consciousness or the mind and it brings us into if it's accurate some ways you could do research on it or uh, ways you can understand how to use in your personal and professional life so it's been really quite useful actually as a um, framework that all comes from the notion that mind is an emergent property of energy. And what does that mean? It's somewhere along this flow from possibility to actuality. So this is essentially the creative process that you're talking about. Exactly. And you can, you know, teach people how to tap into that creative process, you know, in a really direct and visually comprehensible way, which is kind of fun with my daughter Maddie's drawings. People can actually see it. If I draw it, you, you wouldn't be able to understand what I was drawing. But she did this great job in the book, you know, laying out how you work with this visually. And people can tap into this place where 
you know, new ideas rest and dropping into that and letting them emerge is something people describe when they do this wheel of awareness practice. This is a piece of your work that I'm so excited about in, um, I listened to your interview with Tonio earlier and um, in reading your book and these ideas that you're presenting, if we approach them from the outside in, you know, here's one concept, here's another concept it can take. I imagine the, the average person, whether or not they're seasoned in meditation, time to really have a felt sense understanding of some of the concepts that you're presenting. And yet through the wheel practice, there's that idea of understanding it from the inside out. So I can say, you know, there's this, there's this plane of possibility, as you described. There's this place of pure bliss. There's this place of joy where from which any reality can emerge everything's a state of energy and these are concepts that people are working to move their minds around but what you offer in the wheel practice is so accessibly revolutionary in this idea of why don't you just feel it for yourself and then we can come from the inside out about these concepts that are being presented in the book and that has been such a joy to move through um for me as a person who did the practice and said, oh, yeah, yeah, like that's that center point. That's that place where my, I can feel my energy field expanding from my chest. And then, you know, you go back and you read some of the words that you've described and suddenly they have a felt sense knowing to them. And it's so delightful to me to think about folks who are perhaps approaching this language for the first time who can have an inside out experience of some of these incredibly complicated concepts that makes for a landing in the body of what you're proposing. Yeah, exactly. So Maya, that is so beautiful and so beautifully said. It's so great to talk, speak with you, Antonio. And I love the way you're, you're talking about the importance of, you know, this inside out immersion in one's own experience so that first of all we're we're empowered to you know really be cautious that we don't just have to take abstract ideas that don't really apply but actually start with our own experience and say okay this is the experience i'm having that's the first thing so direct what some people use the term subjectivity some people use the word first person they're synonyms really for the direct felt experience of life so then you do that and then What's been so interesting, exactly like you're saying, is if you take these concepts like mind is an emergent aspect of energy, and physicists say energy is the movement from possibility to actuality, and then you see it laid out in terms of your experience of awareness that looks like it correlates with the plane of possibility. States of mind seem like they correlate with a plateau, which would include your mood or, and your intentions. And then as you move upward toward actualization, you have these sub-peak values of thinking and emoting and remembering and even getting to the top as a thought and emotion or a memory. And then it drops back down. Suddenly you realize, you know, you're empowered to basically develop the skill of sensing where your mind is on that probability distribution curve and not just have awareness of it, but really in this remarkable way that is so beautiful, you're empowered to actually move out of sometimes restrictive, imprisoning plateau states that only have certain limited peaks that arise, certain thoughts, certain emotions, certain memories, 
and train your mind, strengthen your mind, give your mind the skill to drop beneath those plateaus and to either go to other freer, more flexible plateaus or drop all the way into the plane where there's this, this exactly what you're saying, this sense of joy and tranquility and ease and incredible possibility. And, and so many things about it have been deeply connecting to do these workshops with, you know, fellow travelers on this journey of human life and, you know, to then with a pretty simple practice, the wheel is actually quite simple. You know, the hub is representing the experience of being aware. The rim is what you're aware of. The spoke allows you to focus attention and you systematically integrate consciousness by, you know, moving this spoke systematically around the rim and even bending it around or leaving it in the hub, bending it around to aim it into the hub to experience this awareness of awareness and then move over to, you know, from mental activities, exploring the hub then to exploring our interconnectedness. It is a simple practice with profound implications for our lives. And just by good fortune, while it was built purely from science and had integration and consciousness being necessary for change and integration being necessary for health, you know, bringing those two together, integrated consciousness, it turns out that it has three foundational pillars of training the mind that research on other practices that look at these pillars independently. Focused attention is one. Open awareness is two. And developing compassion or kindness or what I call kind intentions, three. Those three pillars have been researched. Not, not the wheel yet, but, but the three pillars. It turns out that the three pillars are in the wheel practice. So we can see perhaps of even a synergistic effect to have one practice that has what is what researchers and experts in this area tell me is the only example where you have all three in one practice that they can find. And then you get to do all three in one. And if we'll see if it works out, but if you look at the individual studies, you integrate the brain, you make the brain structure and function more integrated, which means it's a more resilient brain. And the the five physiological changes from the three pillar practice studies are that it reduces stress, improves immune function, reduces inflammation by altering epigenetic controls, optimizes cardiovascular risk factors like lowering cholesterol and lowering blood pressure and having the heart communicate with the head in a more balanced way. And then the fifth thing is it actually optimizes the enzyme telomerase to maintain and repair the ends of your chromosomes called the telomeres. So telomere protection, inflammation reduction, cardiovascular system improvement, immune function enhancement, and reducing stress, all those things combined, especially the telomerase issue, are said to then slow the aging process. That on top of growing a more integrated brain, and you've got some pretty solid research on the three pillar practices, three pillars all being embedded in the one wheel of awareness practice that suggests that even if you were just doing this for health, it'd probably be a really good thing to do. But the other thing that we're talking about here is it actually gives you an understanding of your mind and a stabilizing and strengthening of your mind that really transforms your life in addition to making you healthier and having the aging process slow down. So it's like a win, win, win thing, you know, all around. 
Maya Tavares and I are talking with Dan Siegel, who's well known for his work in the field of interpersonal neurobiology, and he's the author of this book we're talking about, Aware, the Science and Practice of Presence. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College, Community Radio. What I was struck with when I was serving and experiencing this practice was how integrative it was of every other practice that I had ever experienced. And my background comes mostly from um, yogic tradition and from Japanese meditation practices as synthesized through um, Reiki lineages. Um, but all of those things I see contained in this practice in this way that is accessible, is simple, and is full of potential. Um, within yoga, there's a practice called Yoga Nidra, which is rotating the mind through the layers of being until you end up at the center, which you would call the hub and, and Yoga Nidra would call the bliss body. And from there, from that place of infinite potential, we have an opportunity to plant what's called Sankalpa, which is... Um, heart's desire and to watch the brilliance of the practice and the way that you integrate that when you're at the hub or at bliss body is when you start to introduce loving kindness meditation or a kind intention practice as you would say and i was moved i think moved is an appropriate word because i was having a felt sense experience of doing it of the power of that when you have a group of people accessing this work all over the world who are dropped into that sea of potential and who are at that place practicing loving kindness meditation for themselves and others from that quantum space of limitless potential the power that that has to transform our individual experience but also collective experience as you were talking about with me we and we all held in that space and i love the way that you're able to list off the quantitative results of these practices and how that can really land in a western mind and a western audience that says like oh yeah okay i can like see on paper what is happening here but i can also have this felt experience of what is happening i feel better i feel more connected and i'm really moved by the power of this practice and its simplicity efficacy and accessibility well maya that's so so moving for me to hear you articulate this and you know i i'm so excited and also uh, kind of in awe of the way you're describing the an ancient practice in this case about yogic practices and also other practices from japan and people have been coming to me because my training is not in those practices at all and so it's so beautiful eo wilson uses the term consilience where you say well usually independent disciplines of pursuing knowledge and wisdom you know, when they're usually independent, when you actually explore them and find their common ground, we call that, you know, a consilient finding or the process of, you know, the sharing would be called consilience. So what this moment is, is a consilience where you say, well, in these traditions, there's from thousands of years ago often, you know, there's a, a discovery of this and this perspective that matches, let's say, with the wheel. 
And the wheel comes 100% from science. Integration is health, consciousness for change, let's integrate consciousness. And what is also exciting is, you mentioned the, the quantum statement, and I'll, I'll just say this, that right before the book was released, the um, Scientific American, very conservative scientific journal for the public, you know, had their cover story was when does the quantum realm meet the classical, what's sometimes called Newtonian physics realm. And I had been teaching about this with the wheel for years now, and people would roll their eyes and go, yeah, quantum this, quantum that. And I guess people were not aware of the science, which has been around almost 100 years, which is that we do have an aspect of reality, of macro states that Newton figured out 350 years ago compared to about 100 years ago, we figured out there are micro states that have a different set of laws. So in doing the wheel of awareness practice, without ever talking about the physics or about quantum versus Newtonian states, you know, people would describe when they got into the hub versus when they were on the rim, a very different subjective felt sense of what being in those spots of this metaphoric wheel practice was like. So, for example, on the rim, you might hear a sound or see something or smell something or feel something inside your body, and it would be there, it would rise, it would fall away. And there was what you could describe as a sense of time in a more specific way. You would say there was an arrow of time, meaning a directionality to change. Something would first present stay present and then dissolve away and you couldn't get it back there was a kind of past present future feeling to it whereas when you dropped into the hub of the wheel there was a timeless quality to it which when you really would speak to people about it it was more like there was no arrow of time there was no directionality of change it was a sense of eternity deep interconnection sense of bliss tranquility these things that you were referring to in part and when you look at brain studies of how the brain's functioning correlates with time, you really do not, as far as I can tell, get much insight into this distinction of rim versus hub. You know, basically the brain studies show massive degrees of integration, linking differentiated parts seem to be the basis of the experience of being aware of something or even pure awareness and even, by the way, pure love. But we don't really know why that would be timeless, for example, or you feel connected to everything. But when you go beyond just the brain and the brain studies and move to even a broader perspective than even the body and say, let's just talk about energy, while it's never done that my interns can find, it's important to do it, I think, because if the proposal is true, mind is an emergent property of energy, then to understand consciousness, you can go to this state and then you realize that accumulations of microstates into what are called macrostates that ultimately are like mass, like your body or a bicycle or an airplane, they follow the laws of macrostates, which are Newtonian laws, and there is an arrow of time in the classical Newtonian realm. Newton discovered these laws 350 years ago, so it's called Newtonian physics. But 100 years ago, um, when you looked at not macrostates but microstates, the properties, instead of being certain, like Newton figured out, they were uncertain. They were about probabilities, not certainties.
you know, things in the macrostate world are like entities. They're more like nouns that maybe bump into each other. Like here's a planet and there's a moon going around the planet. These two entities have forces that interact with each other called gravity and all this kind of stuff. And even when I was asked to do the wheel of awareness around the apple tree at Sir Isaac Newton's house to point out these distinctions, there was a quote in the hallway between his birth room and the room where he was when there was a plague at Cambridge University, took time off to figure out all the laws of physics, you know, and on the wall it said, I can calculate the location of celestial bodies, but I cannot calculate the madness of men. And, you know, because the mind doesn't have just Newtonian aspects to it. So the bottom line is, in now what we know is the microstate world quantum, quantum means a quanta of energy, which is really a probability field. We have to really think of things not as entities as we do in the Newtonian classical macrostate world as nouns, but rather in the quantum realm, we think of them as events, events that have a relationality to them without an arrow of time. Whereas in the macrostate Newtonian world, things are more noun-like. They exhibit on the surface at least properties that have certainty and noun-like interactions. And this is a very different way to live as a noun versus living as a verb, you know, an event. And part of what I think the hub gives people a chance to do is drop into this plane of possibility, which on our diagram is a quantum state. And so we may see Newtonian classical aspects of having an arrow of time, for example, and things being more certain up in a thought. And in fact, sometimes we cling to certainty with certain rigid plateaus. But when you drop into the plane, this correlates with the hub, you know, of pure awareness, then uncertainty is there. And that can scare people with certain low-lying plateaus that are trying to prevent them from being uncertain. You know, but the interesting thing is uncertainty is a synonym for freedom and for huge possibility. So the more you can do the wheel practice, dropping into the hub, the more you gain access, that's a metaphor, for the mechanism of dropping into the plane. And that's where this bliss and tranquility and love and openness and freedom arise. I also have a long history and background in doing many different types of meditation practice. And your very simple, integrative wheel of awareness practice is stunning in its simplicity and efficacy. I think back on the 40 years of training that I've had, and boy, if I had been given this right from the start, it could have saved me so much searching and confusion along the way. You know, Tonio, it's so interesting because I think as you both, Maya and you, Tonio, have sort of indicated, um, and I don't want to get too emotional at this moment, but, you know, we are at a really crucial moment in the evolution of humanity and life on Earth. And just with recent events that have been going on on all sorts of levels, but especially with the UN report on climate issues and the 1.5 Celsius degrees, we're, we're really pressured to have huge changes in the way we comport ourselves and our incredibly unintegrated relationship with nature. And so we're, we're at a point where these are, are really issues of our own individual well-being. But when we think about the future of life on Earth, 
I do believe very deeply that how accessing this hub, how teaching each of us to come to live from this plane of possibility, that will change the course of how life unfolds and how humanity becomes more integrated with each other, people of different religious backgrounds, national backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, how we find each other, we meet each other on the plane of possibility, and also how we connect with nature, other species, including, you know, plants and, of course, other animals. So we find each other when we access the plane, but if we've been trained through school and family life and media to be separate and to feel frightened of each other and to not really respect the subjective experience of other living beings, people and other other beings, you know, there's not going to be much future for us. So, you know, part of me says, yes, of course, I wish for you individually that it wasn't so frustrating. And if the wheel is helpful, then we should start giving this. I know people run meditation centers and even monasteries who are starting to use the wheel and that's really rewarding. It really is a moment in humanity to say together, and this is why the we term that may reminds us of, you know, this we term is that you have a body that's a me. We have a connected relational world that's a we. We don't need to get rid of the me and the we. And, you know, I try to remind us it's kind of like a candle, you know. We are not just the wax of the candle and trying to be the shiniest one and blow out other people's flames. You know, we are the light beyond the wax alone, and our task is to light up this world. And if we can make that simple shift in consciousness and not being, like, soft about it, I mean, that's why I wrote the Aware Book with all the science in it, 100% solid in the science, and say consciousness, the capacity to be aware, is, in fact, going to be the way humanity takes the next step in its cultural evolution around this planet. So if we drop into that plane, what arises is a deep sense of interconnection with all living beings. What arises from the plane of possibility is love. And when we can fall in love with life on Earth, then we will do whatever it takes to preserve that. Maya Tavares and I are talking with Dan Siegel, author of Aware, The Science and Practice of Presence. Dan Siegel is well known for his work in the field of interpersonal neurobiology, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College, Community Radio. What arises from the plane of possibility is love. And when we can fall in love with life on Earth, then we will do whatever it takes to preserve that. And that's the kind of falling in love with each other that's beyond just the romance you have for a single person or your children or someone in your family, whatever. It's this deep source of, you know, and I talk about this in the book with a number of people, this way you realize, wow, I mean, we're alive, we're all living beings, we share the same air, we share the same light. And all we need to do is do a slight switch from me to we. And there's this release of incredible energy that has within its 
foundations, love, you know, and kindness and compassion. And if we could start to live like that, to realize the truth of our deep interconnection on this planet, that when you make a move to, you know, build a new building, make a new company, say hello to a person on the street, to recycle something, whatever it is, every step you make can be infused with this sacred sense of what a gift it is to be here. And I am so hopeful about humanity while at the same time being very realistic that, you know, we've inherited a vulnerability of the human brain to fall into the trap of in-group versus out-group, dividing into polarization, you know, making someone the enemy and dehumanizing them. We see this all too much in a fear-based planet. And the good news is that you can use the mind to rise above those weaknesses of how the brain can function. And if we can stay true to where the path needs to go, I mean, collectively, this idea of pervasive leadership, we can inspire each other to realize that the mind, including this tapping into the plane of possibility, is the way out of these socially constructed, often fear-based plateaus with their limited peaks that arise of, you know, not very helpful ways of approaching our relationship with other people on the planet. And the path is very simple. It may not be easy, but I think it's very simple that seeing the self as separate, whether it's the self of your body or the limited self of a collected ones in your in-group, a collective self like that, we need to realize that the self is actually not a noun like that. It is a verb. It's a plural verb rather than a singular noun. And that's where we comes in. And, you know, if we just had to pick one kind of simple three-letter thing in English, we is kind of the light. You realize I am the light beyond the wax alone. Meaning, purpose, connection emerge from living like that. And it's a win-win thing all around because you will be healthier, you will be happier, and the planet is waiting for you to awaken your consciousness to this deeper reality of who you are. That's so beautifully said. Thank you. And I can imagine my listening audience asking the question, how does the plane of possibility fit into how we can experience all of this? Yeah, you know, in the book... You know, the first part is to do the wheel so you experience what it's like to get distinguishing of the hub from the rim and then even exploring the hub a bit itself. In the second part, you start saying, well, what in the world was that? And you learn about the plane of possibility. In the third part, you see how people used the experience of the wheel, whether they're five or 55, you know, how do they use that to start living essentially more from the plane of possibility? Not only in it, because you've got to, you know, press on the brakes when you're at a red light and all sorts of things that require peaks and plateaus of how to drive a car or a bicycle or something. So it isn't that this is saying go to a cave and just fold your legs and live in the plane. It's about living from the plane, not just in the plane. So in the fourth part of the book, after you've heard people's stories in the third part, you're now in a position to say, I'm going to do this wheel as a regular practice. And I can feel the shift inside of me, is what we get all the time as feedback, that you are now liberated from a plateau of a separate self, you know, that 
is a socially constructed and the brand probably mediated by something called the default mode network when it's become excessively differentiated or isolated from the rest of the brain, if you just want to look at brain points of view. And now as you tap into the plane of possibility more, you're loosening up the grip of these imprisoning plateaus of a separate self. And you start to feel, and it's really just, you know, what we're, what the three of us are talking about. It isn't just like a concept or something you read in a book or what somebody just happened to say or whatever. You feel it from the inside out, which is really going to be the way we're going to need to go forward. It can't be just where somebody says something, seems, oh, I'm following that person. No, it's about you or there's the idea of pervasive leadership. You you feel the liberation of living from the plane of possibility. And the way I like to think about it in a very kind of practical way is it's like when you go swimming, you know, you, you swim, let's say you're doing the breaststroke. Sometimes you're above the water taking in air and sometimes you're underwater and then you're above water. So no one freaks out saying, oh my gosh, how can there be a water realm and an air realm? This is nutty. This doesn't make sense. Well, the wheel of awareness gives you a way to dive into a quantum realm, the sense of eternity, the sense of love, the sense of infinite potential. And then you come back up into the air realm, if that's the analogy then with the Newtonian realm, and there's action in the world we need to do. But then you go into the timeless wisdom and love inside the hub, and you come back out to the rim, you know, into the air, water, air, water. And, and so it's kind of like, in terms of your question, you know, learning to live from the plane of possibility doesn't mean you're only underwater all the time. It's more like this beautiful swimming experience of underwater, air, water, air, water. And you do that, and it's just a beautiful way to, to live. You know, at the end of the book, I even talk about my own experience with, you know, facing death of my father or my own death, you know, it, doing this myself writing this book and doing the wheel so regularly, you know, has transformed my relationship with not just other people, but with dying. And it's been a kind of, I don't know, a, a deep source of um, energy, especially as times are getting harder and harder and they are going to get harder and harder. We need a common language and a common ground, which I think is the plane of possibility, the hub of the wheel. And imagine if we got enough people like the three of us here starting to be able to communicate at this level, how much a support group that will be extensively when we realize sometimes we'll get lost in despair and feeling frustrated or angry or sad or frightened, all these things on the rim, you know, these peaks and plateaus. But when we drop into the hub and get into the plane of possibility, we find other options that are available to us to keep ourselves going because as things get tougher, we're going to need each other more and more and we're going to need to be in touch with this plane of possibility to keep ourselves resilient and innovative in how we approach a world that is not in our control, but it is in our influence. We do have the power and the capacity to cultivate our consciousness to then transform how we relate to other people and how we relate to the larger world, the planet, to nature. Mm. Wow. Yes. Just listening to you talk, my whole heart center is just, yes. And 
hearing you speak and share about the vision and the knowing of where we are in our collective movement, what our learnings are that we need to rise to in order to see this shift and the tools to get us there and the potential and the hope which amongst so much going on, the, the quality of that burning light of hope is so refreshing that I feel at my center as I hear you talk about it. Beautiful. I really think we're at a turning point now. And it does start with awareness, you know, and it's a wonderful opportunity for each of us to do the inner work that this requires. And luckily, I think it's pretty simple, even though it requires a little bit of work. You start it with yourself, your inner self, then you realize yourself is also an inter-self. And that shift from only inner, you know, just the wax, to also, you know, in addition to being an inter-self, an inter-mind, that light of the candle. You know, if you keep that image in mind, we're going to be on the right path, or we are going to be on the right path, because you need to bring that inner cultivation into the social connections, the nature connections that we need to expand in our world. And, you know, all the studies of how we influence each other, of how systems change happens, are supporting the notion that we really are in a position to make a difference. And the good news is I think it's pretty clear what we need to do. And now together we need to do it. And it's going to be something we can try to have fun with along the way, bring light into it, because if we get too bogged down with seriousness or feeling like we don't deserve to be joyful or happy or laughing, you know, it's going to be very likely will burn out. So that's one of the things I think people talk about these days is they feel like they don't have the right just to be joyful or they've lost the joy. And sometimes it is because they feel they don't deserve it. Well, the we has been a very interesting term because in a way it liberates the lie of a separate self and it helps you realize that when other people do well, you can take joy in that. It's called empathic joy. And lighting the world up, no one owns the light. So as you participate in making this a brighter world, you let go of the illusion of just locking onto something you have to own and instead realize that as you light up other people's wicks and as we only get about 100 years to live in the bodies we're in, these waxy bodies, the light will continue on. And so that is something that, you know, that shift in how we conceptualize the self from a singular noun of a waxy body alone to actually a plural verb where you are the light beyond the wax alone. This sounds simple, but as a we versus just a me, we are in this position. We are in this position to really move cultural evolution, the next stage that it needs to be together. And I, I'm very, very hopeful that this is going to be a very important time for all of I don't want to say moss, but for all of moss. It's very encouraging to hear that from your scientific perspective that you're seeing the ability to integrate the notion of infinite possibility along with the sobering issues that we face in the world and that they are not mutually exclusive. No, in fact, yeah. In fact, the, um, I think the problem we've gotten ourselves into is that when you're locked into a 
plateau of a separate self that is constructed by what you hear your parents not intentionally create. You know, I'm little Danny, you're little Tonio, you're little, you know, Maya, and, and go, okay, that's it. And then school, you're reinforced for the grades you get, and you have to be certain up at a peak, and no one says, oh, we love the questions and the uncertain, you know, be certain. So you have to be certain who you are, and then you compete for this or that, with this illusion that acquiring stuff for the separate self is some kind of pathway towards well-being and a meaningful life but then people just accumulate stuff and all the research shows that you just feel empty and then you use that equation you were taught with this plateau saying oh i better accumulate more stuff and more and more and more and you know this desperation has been really i think driven by this lie of the separate self that's been around really since the time of hippocrates in contemporary culture saying the mind is just the brain in your head and so, you know, the self being separate, in a way, is the often unrecognized, toxic, if not lethal lie, that once we expose it, people feel incredibly relieved at embracing a different view, that you're not a singular noun, that as odd as it sounds, you are actually an emergent, unfolding event interconnected with the whole world around you and let's just call that a plural verb there's a plurality to your identity and there's a verb like nature to your essence and though it doesn't fit with the idea of be certain get right exam scores and you know get a name and a social security number and all these things those are all noun-like reinforcements what you're doing now is you're moving from noun to verb from isolated to connected, to this deep interconnected reality. And that's why I'm really hopeful, because you expose the lie, you liberate the truth, people get healthier, they get happier, you get more joyful, you can have more fun, and you can realize the reality of the way in which we go forward. And that's going to be just, I think, a really great unfolding. And when you feel it inside of your inner life, and then you feel it from the inner lives of others. And then there's this inter-life that's, well, you know, in one group I'm working, we call this a generative social field that generates connection and kindness and compassion. This generative field is something, you know, we can all participate in. And I uh, just spent a week, a part, good part of a week with people exploring generative social fields. And it was just a massive energy boost, a love fest in many ways to liberate ourselves, to realize the absolute joyful reality that interconnected, we can do this together. I'm really drawn to the concept that you just presented, not only of this central hub experience as a place of liberation and unbinding from illusion, but also a place of resilience and resource that we can truly draw on to fill us up in a way that is actually nourishing. And the way that you talk about, like, if I engage with the illusion, the Vedics would say the maya, the, uh, the illusion of the, of the tangible world a car, a person, a this, a that, you know, like if I fill up with things outside of myself, I'm never going to be satisfied. But through these practices, if I can learn to fill up with capital L love, if I can learn how to fill up with light and truth from the embodied experience of mui, of interconnection, I can come back to that in times when I need to draw on that for resource and I can liberate my mind for the journey. Exactly. Beautiful. Now, I can still hear 
people out there who are feeling very traumatized by events in our political system and impending climate change issues and thinking that it's not enough to just go inside and drop into the plane of infinite possibility, that, that there's still work that has to be done out here to, oh, absolutely. to initiate change. But I've always been deeply troubled by the notion of trying to affect change without a connection to that place of infinite possibility of that plane of potential. Right. Well, you know, I work at the Garrison Institute in New York, and our motto is, you know, timeless wisdom, which comes from the inner work, and timely action, which is absolutely, you need to have plateaus and peaks that arise in loving ways to take action in the world. So our conversation today is not about just going to a cave for the rest of your life and hanging out in the plane of possibility. It's about the timeless wisdom of love and interconnection that you gain access to from the plane, the source of resilience that comes from that, and then the timely action in whatever way it arises that fits with you. Some people can do very important things with a neighbor. Some people do very important things with their yard. Some people do very important things in government. Some people work to do this and that. We all have different ways we can contribute to this. So there's no right answer to what is timely action, but there is there are actualized things, these plateaus and peaks that emerge that bring more integration essentially into the world. And that is a really important guidepost. It's timeless wisdom and timely action. And I love that you're now talking about that we can use these concepts of, or the model of plateaus and peaks in an intentional way. Yes. And that exactly. not just unraveling all the old plateaus and peaks that are part of our old default mode network and our old programming. Right, exactly. Well, this is, you know, this is the notion that the presence that arises from the plane of possibility enables the liberation of new plateaus, which are basically states of mind like love and figuring out what does this political situation need here? What does this group I'm in need here? What is this organization I'm functioning with here? What does my neighbor need at this moment? What does my family need? Those are all plateaus, these states of mind of considering various options. And then the peaks that arise, when they're arising from an access plane of possibility, they're filled with love. And they're not, as you're pointing out, they're not constrained just by socially constructed beliefs or by fear entrapped perspective because you're born into a body with an in-group, out-group distinction. So you're locked into this hostile approach but rather you come from literally from a place of possibility and love, that's the plane, and you're permitting, you're enabling the release of these newly formed and flexible plateaus that allow skillful and timely action to take place in the world. And we're free in each moment to respond as is necessary in each moment based on the direct interrelationship with what's going on in that that verb of a moment yeah exactly exactly and that's a freedom you know when you join it with other people's freedoms there's a natural synergy you know things 
being greater than the sum of their parts, where imagine you do the inner work of that liberation, and then you join with other people in a small group that are doing that work, and then maybe the group gets a little larger or you're influencing other groups, but people are coming from the plane. Just imagine the synergy of love and freedom where integration naturally arises from the plane of possibility and the light that's created from that kind of joining. That's why I feel so hopeful and energized by where we're at in this moment is that we can come to that kind of place. We just need to be aware that there's inner work that accompanies it. This is the idea of timeless wisdom, you know, and there is then the natural timely action that comes from this synergistic way of joining together. And it's the notion of quantum uncertainty that underlies this. But uncertainty often means insecurity and lack of control for many people. Yeah, I think as we go on this journey together, reminding ourselves that for some, that uncertainty is scary, but ultimately, at least in my experience of doing this with lots of people, is you come to drop into that uncertainty with a sense of freedom. And the fear that's often there initially and disorientation is usually from previously constructed plateaus, which are trying to keep a person in the realm of a noun. Like, I'm just, I need to know, I need to be certain, I need to have this, that. And when there's this initial disorganization, disorientation, you know, you can feel a little, oh my God, what is this? But then when you drop beneath it, the release of the freedom is just beautiful to experience it oneself, but also when you support other people in that that journey, it's very, very powerful. It's so wonderful how just relaxing into the plane of possibility can help free us from all these separation-based plateaus that we face individually and collectively. Well, this is so beautiful to discuss all this with you, and I, I look forward to continuing the conversation during other meetings. This has been really, really fantastic. Yes. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, Mayan. Thank you very much, Antonio. It's been really, really deep, and thank you so much for the connection. It's been wonderful to talk with you. A pleasure. Until the next time. Be well. Be well. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Dan Siegel. Daniel Siegel is a clinical professor of psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine. He's the founding co-director of the UCLA Mindful Awareness Research Center and the executive director of the Mindsight Institute. He's also an award-winning educator, a distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association, and he's the author and co-author of many books, including The Neurobiology of We, Parenting from the Inside Out, The Whole Brain Child, The Yes Brain, Mindsight, and his latest book is Aware, The Science and Practice of Presence.
And that's about it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, have a wonderful week.